So he was God-centered, mission-focused, radically committed. How do we know that? Well, Acts 20.24, and just as a reminder, I'm only referring to what Paul has written and said. I'm not going anywhere else. Well, I did go to Acts, but that's because it was about Paul. Acts 20.24, it is Paul now where he's testifying, and he testifies. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's a radical commitment. I consider my life worth nothing to me. And guys, I don't know if you wake up every morning and think, I'm, I'm worth nothing. I don't do that every morning. I, I want to do that every morning. And I do really try to wake up every morning with a focus on Christ and a worshipful mindset, a worshipful posture. But a lot of times I don't get to the point where I say, but God's everything great, but I'm nothing. I I forget to do that or I fail to do that. Paul did that. Paul lived like that. He didn't let himself get in the way of what God wanted to accomplish through him. We don't just see that in Acts 20, 24. If you were, for example, to look at Mm, I have a really neat verse here, and I don't know what it is. Don't remember where it's from. So guess what? We're not going to look at it. How about that? Because we're kind of starting to run out of time anyway. Paul's radically committed. That's number three. And number four, he's powerfully relevant. Powerfully relevant. So he's Christ-centered. He's mission-focused. He's radically committed. And he's powerfully relevant. How do we know that? Because when you go to places like Acts chapter 17, and you find Paul again, like in Luke 19, he's in a public place in a major city. That's what he did. He went to public places in major cities and preached the gospel and trained people. This time he's in Athens. And he's in a place where he sensed that there was strategic value for the gospel. In other words, he sensed an opportunity to become incredibly relevant to the people that were there in what was called the Areopagus. And how did he do that? Here's what in Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. So think of, there are different ways to think of it, but think of a meeting of elites. They could be elite in, a, in an intellectual, philosophical sense, great brains getting together. It's a think tank. They could be elite in a political sense, people that have power and influence in the society, whether it's politicians or whether they're the cultural elites. But these are the people who are gathering together who have something to say because they all have opinions and they care about the latest ideas. And Paul gets in there and he's looking around, he's listening to the conversation, and then he stands up, he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Well, guess what? I mentioned politics, I mentioned culture. You can't have any society anywhere ever where religion is not a component. And so even though we live in a very secular society, Brazil, most of Brazil, most segments of society are very secular. Many churches have become very secularized, sadly. But there is always a religious root. People always want to think about existential questions. What happens when I die? That's the most basic one. Why am I here? That's one of the most basic ones. And when you put it all together, people end up building religious packages around these questions. 
And so Paul is no fool, much to the contrary. He's got political leaders. He's got cultural leaders. He's got academic leaders. He's got religious leaders. And he stands up and I sit, he says, I see that all of you have some religious essence. So here's what I want to do. I want to make true religion known and relevant for you. He says, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you right now. So these people were religious enough and scared enough that they wanted to cover all of their bases. How did they do that? They're like, well, there might be a God that we don't even know exists. And in case he exists, we better build an altar to him. And that way he won't get mad at us and send us to hell when we die. But we don't know his name, so we'll just call him the unknown God. So here you go, unknown God. Here's an altar for your worship. Well, that's, Paul goes, here's a bridge to share the gospel. Some people call that a redemptive analogy. He makes an analogy based on what he finds in the context and he preaches the gospel. What's our point here? He's powerfully relevant. He took up an opportunity that existed, that presented itself. And he said, I'm going to preach the gospel on the basis of this. He sought to be relevant. Today, and by which I mean in today's world, one of the things that you need to know, and if I ask you to raise your hands, I don't need to because it's going to be 99% of you. If I say, how many of you are not religious professionals? How many of you are not pastors, not missionaries? Everybody just about is going to raise your hand. And then we're going to have a dilemma. Because we know that 6,000 people groups in the world, ethnic groups, that's 40% of the world's ethnic groups, have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that represents 40% of the world's people too. So you're talking about over 2 billion people well over 2 billion people that have not heard the gospel. The religious professionals aren't going to get the job done. You know who's going to do it? You. When Paul looks for ways to be powerfully relevant, he's saying, remember he said, be like me? So he's saying, you be powerfully relevant, which means you have to look for ways to be powerfully relevant. How do you do that? We, we use expressions like tent-making, we like, I like, I love an expression called business as mission, where whatever your professional activity is, and especially business, um, for, that's something that I've chosen to focus on, but, but you, whatever you are, engineer, teacher, psychologist, medical professional, you use that. You be like the goodies girls, that's what we call them, Larissa and Andresa. And you start a business for the praise of God's glory. That's how you're relevant to society. It's not just about you as an individual speaking about Jesus. It's about you engaging everything around you and mobilizing everything around you so that people hear and see and sense and feel the glory of God, the power of God, the truth of God, the justice of God, the love of God. You need to contaminate the environments that you find yourself in every single day. Be powerfully relevant, like Paul. And then fifth and final is be doxologically driven. You you sense, I like some of these Greek and Latin words and they get long like anthropocentric. Well, here's, here's one that I really love. 
doxology, doxological. The essence of that word is doxa. The root of that word is doxa. It's a Greek word. It means glory. And so when you find Paul starting letters and even more frequently finishing letters or sometimes just right in the middle because he can't contain himself, uh, the shortest example that I can think of is going to be something like Philippians 4.20, right at the end of the book. And he goes, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's doxologically driven. He writes an entire pastoral letter to the church in Philippi, and then he, he, he really wants to make sure they didn't misunderstand his phroneo. They didn't misunderstand his attitude. They didn't misunderstand his focus. And he says, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This whole letter that I just told you about, starting in chapter 1, where I said God called you into his mission, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you, or where a few verses later I talked about all of my sufferings, Then I started talking about joy. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about living, no matter what our circumstances are, for the praise of God's glory. So therefore, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's doxologically driven. We see this very powerfully in chapters like, the. well, it's everywhere. It's hard to just pick out one. But I like Ephesians chapter 1. And the the whole first part of that chapter is incredible. If you just look at verses 3 through six in particular. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will for the praise of his glory. Paul was doxologically driven. And if you can make one affirmation about Paul, it's that. He only cared about the glory of God. I said we were going to get to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to wrap up here with a portion of Philippians chapter 2. There's a, here's your Greek word, kenosis. What's going on in Philippians chapter 2? God empties himself, kenosis. Jesus is God, and he became, God became Jesus. God became, excuse me, those who are theologically astute are going to call me to the carpet on that God didn't become Jesus. God always was Jesus. Jesus always was God. God became human. That's what this passage is about. God emptied himself of his eternal glory for a temporal moment, a time in our world where he would do what? And it's, it's Philippians 2 verses 5 through 12. And remember, we started in verse 5 early on and we said, Phroneo is here. In your relationships with one another, have that same mind or mindset or attitude of Christ Jesus. Now, you see what I just did? There's a reason. Paul the whole time was saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. We've been looking at Paul. And I said, we, we shouldn't, got to be careful. Don't just look at Paul. Well, Paul very majestically right here points us to Jesus. So now, now we're all going to Jesus. We're all going to look at Jesus. And because Paul says your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. So let's look at what the attitude of Christ Jesus was, what the phroneo, how did Jesus feel about things? How did Jesus think about things? Let's look at his phroneo, not just Paul's. Jesus Christ who, and now I'm in verse 6, being in very nature God, always was, always will be, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You guys remember this passage? He didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness. There is no greater missionary leap in all of our history, world history, redemptive history, than for God to become man. If you think it would be tough to be a missionary in China and have to learn Chinese and understand Chinese culture, or in the Middle East and have to learn Arabic and Arab culture, think of the the, the greatest distance between two possible sets of human beings. It is infinitesimally nothing. Um, philosophers might tell me that what I just said doesn't even exist. I don't know, but it sounded good. It's nothing, nothing. Compared to what Jesus did, God became man. He emptied himself. He was found in human form, a servant. And what happens? Being found in human appearance, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is doxologically driven, and he drives us to this point, starting in verse, well, I just read verse 8, but we're going to go 8 through 11 now, Philippians chapter 2. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Why? 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 It's the doxological drive. It's because he wants God to be glorified. It's because God wanted God to be glorified. That's why he sent Jesus, so that... Therefore, here's the consequence. Sometimes in, in kind of old English, you can ask this question. Wherefore is the therefore there for? Go back and listen to it on the video and try to figure it out. Sometimes I can't even understand what it means. What it means is, if there's a therefore, meaning here comes some consequences of what I just talked about. If, I, if things are going on here, the therefore means the reason for all of those things is now this. God exalted Jesus Christ to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is just mind-boggling. And so for us to really understand that, then we put on our phroneo glasses. We want to engage with that intellectually. We want to have a feeling about it. We want to create an attitude that has intellectual substance behind it, but that has emotion pouring through it. And I guarantee you that if you've struggled, for example, with, gosh, I know I'm supposed to share Christ, but I just am not courageous enough to do it. If you have the intellectual conviction and understanding and you have an emotional motivation behind it, nobody can stop you. You're going to run through your day every single day looking for ways to reflect the glory of Christ and talk about this glorious God and salvation that comes only through him. So what we're saying here is if Paul, number five, doxologically driven, what are the practical ways that we do this? Well, in church, we talk a lot about the kingdom of God, but I would like to suggest that we talk a lot more about the God of the kingdom. Talk about the king of the kingdom. The kingdom makes no sense. It has no purpose if there is no king. The king is glorious. By extension, his kingdom is, but that's consequential. We need to be focused on the king more than 
the kingdom. We talk a lot about missions, and so we talk about the mission of God. Well, just invert the phrase for me, please. Talk more about the God of the mission than the mission of God. You fulfill the mission of God by talking about the God of the mission. Or if you like to talk about the gospel, and we do, we should. But instead of talking about the gospel of God, you know what I'm going to do now, don't you? Talk about the God of the gospel. Some people like to say like this, God is the gospel. And that's absolutely true. That is a way to understand what's going on. When you look at Philippians 2 and say that you see that God emptied himself, then you know that God is the gospel. That's the message. God became man, died on our behalf, wants to reconcile us to him so that we can worship him for all of eternity. Oh, what, what happened? Yeah, it wasn't about us. It was about him, that he would have worshipers for all of eternity. Talk less about the gospel of God and talk more about the God of the gospel because when you talk about the God of the gospel, you are presenting the gospel. We talk about the gifts of God, whether that's some form of skill set that we have so we can have a job and make money and pay the bills and, or whether it's spiritual gifts. Let's talk more about the God of the gifts and let's use those gifts for the glory of that God and not get distracted by the gifts and not get distracted by asking for the gifts and not get distracted by what we're going to do with the gifts, even if we're thinking about spiritual use of the gifts. Let's talk about the God who gives the gifts. I want to finish with a story and kind of roughly on time it looks to me. I want to illustrate with a story from some of my teammates. Last week I mentioned, and some of you already know this, I lead a mission agency. We're in about 25 different countries. We have a team in Brazil that actually, what do we do? We train and send Brazilians to go to nations, people groups in particular that haven't yet heard the gospel. Central Asia is one of the places that we work. Uh, less, fairly recently, I don't want to give too much information actually, um, there was a Christian news service, a major Christian news service that reported this. And their names, these, the names that I'm about to say are okay because they're publicly known in this country. In fact, they mentioned the country. This, is, this was public news, so I can mention the country. When I start talking about my teammates, I'm not going to say anything about region of the country or names or anything like that for their protection. Here's the news story. Recently, four people in Uzbekistan were arrested by the police. Christianity in this Muslim country has a sad history. Uzbekistan has the fourth largest number of martyrs in history and is ranked usually between the seventh and ninth as having the most persecuted church in the world. Two of the four people detained by the authorities have been... Now, this, this, this is kind of still introductory I just, I just want to make sure that you understand that I'm not giving anything away that I shouldn't give away because this will actually be on the internet. This, so far, this is common knowledge. Two of the four people detained by the authorities have been with our organization for several years. And now I'm not going to say the name of the organization you know, just for the recording, although somebody who's crazy is going to find out, but I'm not going to say it. For some reason, the incident gained international attention. And here comes the story from this international news agency. Trouble began for the four Protestants on the morning of the 8th of May when they were stopped while crossing from the Samarkand region to the Navoy region. The four were traveling in a car driven by 
Turdiev. This is a publicly known name. It's okay for me to say it. The police know Turdiev very well as he was persecuted by the police and authorities in the past. And he was fined several times before the Tashkent Protestant complained to this news agency. The traffic police sergeant who stopped their car in the Karmana district produced no identification document or search warrant. He asked for the four to produce their identification documents and the registration certificate of the car. He then made the men get out of the car and inspected the car's passenger compartment and the boot. There's some good British English right there. The boot, some of us, we'd call it the trunk in American English. When he realized he could, and it's portamales for anybody that didn't know what either one of those words were. When he realized he could find no fault with the brothers, he asked them to show the inside of their bags and pockets. When Turdiev asked for two witnesses for the search, in other words, the Christian who was being, this is a, a form of persecution. His rights, there, the four of them, rights were being violated, but they knew they had certain rights theoretically. So he said, you can't do this. You didn't even identify yourself as a true police officer. You can't do this without having two other witnesses. The police officer didn't care. So he asked for the two witnesses. And when he did, this this sergeant, this police officer became agitated and began shouting and said that he does not need any witnesses, close quotes. To the Protestants' demands that the sergeant tell them why he stopped them and that he showed them the traffic police's warrant. They had to show a warrant. A lieutenant, the boss of the sergeant now says, I don't work for the traffic police. I'm a police dog handler. Now, wait a minute. So he's not even really a traffic cop. He handles police dogs. He doesn't have a search warrant. There are no witnesses. But he's still going to insist with the search. Asked on what grounds a police dog handler stopped their car. And told that he had violated their constitutional rights, he shouted at them, the constitution and laws are for Tashkent. Here in Navoy, same country, just a different region, we have our own laws. It's like going to Hilgrange do Sul, because they think they're another country anyway, right? So they go, no, your laws from Curitiba, they don't mean anything here, we have our own laws here. When Turdiev asked why he and his fellow believers were stopped, the officer punched him in his stomach. And two other officers who had been just kind of in the background until now, two other officers who did not even identify themselves either began to strangle him. He lost consciousness, and those beasts, this is what our brothers had said, he lost consciousness, and those beasts in uniforms, instead of calling for doctors, just gave him some drops of heart medicine. All right, I want to jump ahead just a little bit. When another one of our brothers in Christ was brought into an office, this is the same larger experience, just a different moment. He was brought into the police office by five unknown officers and he was held. Now, this particular brother is physically handicapped. He has a form of muscular dystrophy. He also has asthma. All five officers began smoking in his face, blowing smoke in his face, causing him to choke. And when he asked to be taken outside for fresh air, they said no. The officers threatened to rape him. The use of physical violence and torture and threats 
by authorities in Uzbekistan is widespread. The Protestants refused, the Protestants refused to sign any police reports or write any statements. In other words, what, do you see what they're thinking right now? They're thinking, we might go to jail. We don't care. We're not going to lie. We're not going to give in to this pressure. We're going to stand firm in our conviction that we, not only did we not do anything wrong, but the best way, the best possible outcome here is for us to keep trying to point these police officers to Jesus. They ended up being released. But let me tell you, right after this, this was the news report, right after this, one of them sent an email to us. And part of his email is this. During one of our visits within our country, the police stopped our car, this is his perspective on it, and decided without any witnesses and without permission to check the car. We refused. They were... So his English is not perfect. I'm actually going to correct it a little bit here. They treated us rudely because we know the law. But the police decided to conduct a full scan of our car and of us. We called some people. The police did not like it, and they wrote a paper and told us to sign these documents. We refused. Then we were taken to the police station and held all day until late evening, threatened and demanded to sign the papers. We refused. One of our brothers, he choked. In other words, he was describing the fuller incident. It was the brother with asthma and the smoke, and he... And then the other incident where the one was literally physically choked by the police officers. The police took our passports and gave the case to the court because they said that we disobeyed the authorities. When we were let go, we took a lawyer who helped us receive our passports and cancel the fines. We were only given a warning. Listen to how he finishes the letter. Thank you, Father, for mercy on us. A big hello to all our friends. They write us this letter based on this harrowing story that neither you nor I would ever want to experience. They go into details and then they go, praise God they set us free, tell the brothers we said hello. It's like, wait a minute. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be writing letters, all right, to congressmen and to police officials and to governors and to presidents. And I'd be writing letters to all of my Christian friends saying, oh, coitadinho, coitadinho, okay, genos, poor us. Look at what happened. We suffered so much. Send money. I'm kidding. But isn't that how we normally like, oh, no, I can't believe we had to suffer for the gospel. When you really are in a, a location or a context or a situation where you suffer, Karim knows all about this. You start to change. As long as you're doing your phroneo exercise, what does the Bible say about it? How do I feel about what the Bible says about it? You know what? And then you get to those five phroneos of Paul. I'm, I'm God-centered. I'm mission-focused. I'm radically committed. I'm powerfully relevant. And I'm doxologically driven. I am out of time. We need to pray Hopefully there was something worth paying attention to. And my deepest desire for all of us is that as we walk with Christ on a daily basis, we would take advantage of this amazing privilege that we have, not just to study and think about the Bible, not just to worship and have feelings about Jesus, but to live with that all-encompassing posture of thinking and feeling strongly and powerfully about our good and great and glorious God and then actually doing something about it by Ephesians chapter 1 living 
for the praise of his glory. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the riches in your word. Thank you that when we dig, we don't have to dig far because we find gold and we find gems and we find treasures. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who makes these things make sense to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding into the truth and the reality of Scripture and who allows us to feel strongly about what the Bible teaches and about you and then to get up every day and be on mission with you to reflect and to talk about and to, through our strong feelings, make sure that everybody around us knows that we live for the praise of your glory because you are so worthy of being glorified in all areas of our lives and among all peoples of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for the week that's coming. May it be the most glorious in our lives and for your glory that we have ever lived individually and collectively. In Jesus' name, amen.